What we have been given here in Scripture is sufficient for not only knowing what God has done from the beginning of time, but knowing everything that God has done to secure our salvation. And further, knowing what God is going to do at the end of all things. We know from Scripture that the inheritance that Paul speaks of in verses 11 through 14 is a guarantee. It is secured for us on the cross of Christ. It is promised to us in the word of God, and we know that God cannot go back on his promises. And I talked last week about the, the difference between sort of having a sort of mental understanding, a cognitive assent to this idea, and seeing how that plays out in our lives, what that looks like for us in practice. And the way I wanted us to, to do that was to sort of relate to the Apostle Peter. I wanted us to be able to sort of see ourselves in Peter and the silly things that he said and to see Peter in ourselves when we say and think and do silly things. And so I'm going to begin by sort of reviewing some of the things that, that Peter had to say. Um, Remember, at, at one point, Jesus was sort of explaining the entire purpose for the incarnation, the entire reason that was, he was here. He said that there's an appointed time for me to die. Right? He was foretelling his own death and resurrection, and Peter thought it wise to say, Far be it from you, Lord. He says, You can't die, surely not. And of course, Jesus rebukes him. Um, Later on, the fulfillment of this particular prophecy of Jesus is at hand, and the Jewish leaders and their guards are coming to take Jesus away so that he would stand trial and execution. And what does Peter do? He tries to kill one of them. Right? He, you know, it's in some sense admirable that you know, he is defending his friend, but he is trying to get in the way of Christ doing what Christ came to do. Um, and one of the important points that I wanted you to get out of that related to how we as elders and teachers um, are to relate to you, the sheep. Right? Yes, a shepherd is charged with defending his sheep. When the wolves come into the flock and try to eat you. The shepherd is responsible for protecting you. But it is, of course, possible for us to sin in our anger, and we as teachers, we as elders, in defense of you, may sin in our anger. Just as Peter, trying to defend Jesus, tried to kill a man. We also saw that there was a storm. Right, The disciples and Jesus are on a boat. There's a storm. Jesus is asleep. And while the scripture does not tell us that this is Peter, it is very much like Peter to insist that Jesus has forgotten about us, that Jesus doesn't care that we are dying. Whichever disciple it was, he says, Do you even care that we are perishing? What I wanted us to understand from that is that God is looking out for us, right? We are a part of God's plan. God has promised to keep us secure. 
right? He has not promised to, you know, bless us gratuitously with material possessions. He has not promised that we would not suffer. In fact, we have been promised that we will suffer for our faith. But through that, we have been given a promise that he is faithful to keep us secure in our faith, right? Our salvation that is given to us in Christ cannot be questioned. That much cannot be shaken. Jesus was teaching a rich man what he must do to be saved, and this man was very rich, and he claimed, I have followed the whole law. And Jesus said, okay, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away very sad because he was very rich. And Peter walks up to Jesus and says, we got rid of everything we had. What do we get? And I want us to understand that if we ever find ourselves pointing out to God how good we were, we've made a mistake somewhere, right? We need to understand that our salvation, our regeneration is on account of Christ. It's on account of God and his sovereign decree to save us for his glory, not because of something we have done, not because of anything that God has foreseen in us. Right? It did not please God to save us because we were pleasing to him, but it pleased God to save us because Christ was pleasing to him. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and starts shining like the sun, right? Radiant light beaming from his face, and then Moses and Elijah, the real ones, are sitting there speaking with him. And Peter says, it's a good thing I am here, because I can build some tents with you, and we can camp out and have our little uh, Jesus... Christian superstar party in my tent. And of course, you remember that the voice of the Father booms from heaven, rebuking Peter, telling him to shut up and listen to Jesus. Um, And I feel strongly about this particular text, Matthew 17, because it was the first sermon I ever preached. And it was the First time I realized, I'm Peter. This was the text from which I first saw Peter in myself. It's because I you know, thought I had a lot to offer God, right? I was going to be one of God's all-stars. My skills, my talents, my faith, they were so very useful to God. God didn't need me to be useful. God didn't need me or any of my talents. He needed me to be humbled. He needed me to realize that he was everything I needed, that he would equip me to do the work of the ministry. Then, of course, you remember that Jesus tells Peter, you will deny me before tomorrow morning, three times. And Peter just says, no, no, I won't. If you ever find yourself just flat contradicting God, you've probably made a mistake. What I want us to understand from this is that sometimes we will fail, right? We have not yet been perfected in our 
bodies. We are still working to destroy the flesh in us, right? We are still working to grow and to mature in our faith. And sometimes we mess up. It's going to happen. It has happened today probably, right? Then Jesus tells Peter also that he was going to wash his feet, right? The disciples are getting ready for dinner, and Jesus starts washing their feet. And when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't, you have no share with me, right? And then we saw Peter sort of overcorrect and say, okay, wash my hands, wash my, ha- wash my head, wash my hands. And Jesus says, no, just your feet. Your head's clean, your hands are clean. And ultimately, what we need to see from all these things that Peter says is that Scripture is sufficient, right? Each of these things that Peter says and does are born out of Peter not trusting in the words of Christ, right? At each turn, Peter contradicts the words of Christ in some way. And yet we are given these things so that we can, one, see ourselves in them, so that we can recognize when we are doing this, and two, that we can see that despite Peter, God used Peter, right? Despite Peter's hard-headedness, his zealotry at inappropriate times, God still used Peter. And just as God used Peter, God is going to use us for something, right? Each of us has a place in God's kingdom. Each of us has a place in the church. Each of you has some job to do. And that might look different for every person. In some seasons of your life, that might look like just showing up and being here, right? One of the things that I emphasized back when I was teaching on the local church is that not everyone actually is charged, is called with doing something great. For some people, for some time, it may just be that God has called you to be here to learn, to grow, and to love your brothers and sisters, to fellowship with us. Not everyone is called to teach. Not everyone is called to serve in the same way. But everyone is called to be part of the assembly. Everyone is called to be here. Everyone is called to love their brothers and sisters. So while your calling may not be as so you know, great or magnificent is what the apostles did. You are called to be here, be one of us, be part of the assembly. So we're going to move into finally the last part of verse 10, where Paul says that this plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
And so before we get there, I'm going to sort of take a side tangent to lead us into it by talking about how we read the Bible and how we understand the Bible. And it will be clear why I'm doing that. So first, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm just going to read this, starting in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So first we need to understand that this is the Word of God. This is not someone's interpretation of what God said, right? These are the words of God. This is what God has breathed out given to the apostles to write down and deliver to us. All of it, the whole thing, even the black letters. Right, I, a few weeks ago, I was giving red-letter Bibles a hard time. Right, the black letters and the red letters have the same authority. Right, there are some churches out there that sort of take the red letters, the actual words spoken by Christ when he was on earth, and They put them up here and sort of take all the other black letters and they're sort of secondary. They're still authority, but the red letters are the best letters. We should be careful not to make that mistake. Even the words that Christ spoke and the words that Christ didn't speak that were given to the apostles to deliver to us have the same authority. It is all breathed out by God. Second, Scripture equips us for every good work, right? It's not most good works, right? This is sort of one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church misses, right? In Rome, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, he has the same authority as the Bible, according to Rome. And by giving the Pope that authority... They are saying that the Pope can equip us for good works, that Scripture has not, right? The Pope is necessary to complete the Word of God for us. Of course, this cannot be. Scripture is complete. It is sufficient for equipping us for every good work. And the reason I'm telling you about this is that Scripture itself equips us to understand it. Scripture is the highest authority for interpreting Scripture. When you read the Bible and you find something you don't understand, the first place you go to should be other places in the Bible that you do understand. I've often made the mistake of reading something in Scripture and thinking, you know, I need to go check a couple commentaries to make sure I'm getting this right. No. Check Scripture. Our statement of faith even says that, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture. When you don't understand this, go somewhere else that you do understand and start there. And that's actually what we are going to do today. Remember what Peter's problem was. He doubted the sufficiency of the words of Christ, right? And so my sermon today is built upon... The fact that I don't know what Paul is talking about at the end of verse 10. 
And what I mean by that is I'm not entirely sure exactly what Paul is pointing to when he says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I don't know what he means. I know what he could mean. And so I don't want to stand up here and pretend to know everything and just tell you this is what Paul is talking about when I'm not actually sure. So instead of making some assertion about what Paul actually means, what we're going to do is we're going to explore other things that Scripture more clearly teaches that Paul is probably talking about here. And this is what I do when I, when I read Scripture. When I find things I don't understand, I say, okay, what could he be talking about based on what I am sure about what Scripture teaches? So at the end of the day, I'm not going to make a claim about which of these exactly Paul is talking about. And so, I can't be wrong in that sense. But we will hear things that Scripture does, in fact, teach. So Paul says, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What we're going to do is look at four things that are taught elsewhere in Scripture that Paul is probably referring to in some way. And at the end of the day, Paul's probably referring to all four of these things in some sense, in some way, at the same time. I just can't point to one of them and say, this is exactly it. So first, a plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. The first observation I want to make is that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, creation becomes disordered in some way. Right? Turn to Genesis 1. Right, right at the end of Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and morning the sixth day. Right, so God looks upon what he has created, everything that he has made, and he determines that it is very good. And we hear about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and how perfect it was. Right? Their relationship with God was in order. Their relationship with creation was in order. All they had to do was what? Not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course, God had a plan for the fullness of time that Adam would sin and that through Christ, Adam would be redeemed. Verse 14 of chapter 3 This is the Lord speaking after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit of the tree, after they've been deceived by the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam's sin creates separation. It creates disorder. The relationship between man and God is severed. The relationship between man and creation is ruined. And so it may be that Paul is talking about here when he speaks of um, uniting all things in heaven and earth is the reconciliation of these relationships. Turn to Romans 5. Paul gives us some commentary on what happened there in Romans chapter 3. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, right, that one man is Adam, and death through sin, so death came through that sin, right, that was the promise. Right? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on that day that you eat, you shall surely die. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? We all suffer because of Adam's sin. We are all guilty because of Adam's sin. This death, this sin, spreads to all men because of Adam. And so we see that creation, the world, everything around us is totally out of order compared to how it was in Eden. Right? If you're still in 2 Timothy, I'm going to back up just a little bit there in chapter 3. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Johannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Right? If you didn't think we were in the last days, you should after we read that first bit of chapter 3. Right? I mean, you look out into the world and we see this. Right, but we've been able to see this. We can read even in the Old Testament that this is what the world was like apart from Christ. Right, this was the Babylon that took Israel captive. This was the Egypt that took Israel captive. And this is the culture that has the church of God captive now. Right? We live among this. All of creation is set out of order because of Adam's sin. But... It will not always be so. Turn to Revelation 21. One of the very last images that is given to the Apostle John. 
Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for, a, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, this is John, saying, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So it is likely that in some sense when Paul talks about the uniting of things in heaven and things on earth, he is referring to this marriage, this new heaven, this new earth that meet together. The old has passed away and the new has come. Right? Remember, in the garden, the relationship between man and God is severed. And then here, the end of days... Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Things on earth have been united with things in heaven. And so here, Paul is speaking broadly, tying together all of history. Now, it may be that Paul is speaking more narrowly, more specifically particularly about the reconciliation of God and the elect. Right, back in Romans 5, verse 12, we saw that sin and death enter through Adam. And Paul goes on in verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. All right, so just as death spreads to all men through Adam, death spreads, or life spreads to the people of God through Christ, right? Apart from Christ, we are separated from God. It's not that you know, we just can't reach him. It's that God in his justice cannot have relationship with us in our wickedness. Right? This is what Paul tells us in Romans 3. Right? Those apart from Christ are what? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of serpents is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right? We can't read this and think to ourselves, yeah, but everyone's you know, got a little bit of good in them, right? God has done just enough so that everyone could choose him if they 
wanted to, right? No. No one seeks for God. The elect of God have faith in God because God has granted them faith through the power of His Spirit. Apart from that, we would be Romans chapter 3. Our throats are open graves. So God, in his justice, is compelled to execute his justice. God cannot be unjust. And so for the wicked, there is wrath. But in Christ, we are reconciled to God. Right? God demands righteousness. The law demands perfection. And so in Christ, there is found perfection. Perfection and righteousness. For his people, his righteousness is counted their own. Christ does the work of making us righteous. And so it may be that when Paul says, all things united, things in heaven and things on earth, in Christ that he is referring to this reconciliation between his people and God the Father, God the Judge. Paul may be referring even, even more specifically to the marriage between Christ and his bride. Remember, we've talked about this idea of this covenant of redemption, right? This heavenly, eternal transaction between God the Father and God the Son where God the Father promises to give to the Son a bride, God the Father promises to glorify the Son, and in exchange, God the Son would make her clean. God the Son would redeem his bride. So when Paul speaks of uniting things in heaven and things on earth, it may be that he is referring to this marriage between Christ and his bride. Right? And this is very similar to this last thing. And this is why I think all of these things that we're talking about here are probably, in some sense, what Paul is talking about. Christ, the bridegroom, has redeemed his people. He has washed us clean. And so the things in heaven that are united with the things on earth are Christ in heaven and on earth, his church. And those on earth are those, those united with him are those who are in him. Now there's one more thing that I want to talk about, and this is one that um, just about every commentator, because I did check the commentaries, right? I did look to see what different commentators said about this, and this is the one that most of the commentators, they at least had some element of this in their understanding of verse 10. And that is that Paul may be referring to the reuniting of the saints who have gone before with the saints who are still here on earth. Turn to Hebrews 12. Um, one of my study Bibles even had this as a cross-reference. Um, 
for Ephesians 1.10. Right, in 12 verse 1, probably Paul says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in verse 18, he says, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word of Abel. So in verse 18 there, we see, for you have not come to, um, he's speaking about Sinai there, then in, let's see, verse 22, you have come. So the you there he's talking about is the church, right? The you, the addressees of the letter, he's talking to us, right? The saints on earth, we have come. And then there in verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, I do want to make a side tangent here. This is, to my knowledge, the only use of this word assembly, right? The Greek word is ecclesia. To refer to this idea of saints who are not those gathered in the local church, right? If you do a word search of the Bible for the word church, the Greek word ecclesia, what we find is that it's talking about this, what we're doing here. It's talking about local churches gathered in different places. But here it's not what it's talking about. It's talking about saints gathered in heaven, right? And so it is sort of from this text that uh, comes this idea of the universal or invisible church. Right? You might have heard those words before. If you've ever read the, uh, was it the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, one holy Catholic church Right, you'll see Reformed churches who will you know, recite this creed and they talk about the Catholic church. That just means the universal or invisible church. Now, the simple version of what we're talking about when we say those words, it just means the elect. Right? That's what it's referring to. Right? Universal meaning all of God's people sort of lumped into one or invisible meaning those people of God who are Um, gathered together, and with respect to the work of the Spirit, it's invisible, right? We can't see the work of the Spirit because the Spirit is invisible. Now, we prefer to avoid this language, this idea of invisible or universal church, because it is not itself a biblical category, so to speak. Right? Scripture doesn't use the word ecclesia to talk about the elect in total. Okay? Um, if you want to, it's okay. Right? You're not wrong. It's okay to talk about the church. I mean, we do it all the time. Right? We say the church, just talking about God's people in general. Um, but, one, this isn't even really what 
the author of Hebrews is talking about, right? When he says the assembly of the firstborn, he's talking about the saints who are in heaven, who have gone before, right? But there's also this idea uh, that gets abused, this idea of invisible or universal church that gets abused. I've seen it used as an excuse for avoiding the assembly. I've seen it used as an excuse for not gathering, as though all the blessings that are had here in the assembly could be had apart from it. As though I have my Bible, I'm part of the universal, the invisible church, and that's good enough. Now, there are those who do not have access to biblical assembly, right? We have many people who watch our stream online. You are friends with many of them. You speak to them on the phone. You message them on Facebook. They do not have assembly near them. We pray for them. We speak with them. We fellowship with them as we are able. And I have friends who are in this position, and they want to be in assembly, right? Your soul cries out for fellowship because we need it. But we know that many of the blessings promised to us from God are given to us in the assembly. That is the ordinary means by which God blesses his people. And so when scripture talks about the church, it's talking about local churches. But here in Hebrews 12, it speaks about the marriage, the union of the saints who are here on earth and the saints who are in heaven. Through the gospel of Christ, we are brought together all as one assembly. So in the end, Paul is probably talking about all of these things in some way. I just haven't been able to piece, piece it all together. And so what I did when I'm studying this, I read this, unite all things in him, things on heaven on, and things on earth. And I say, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, Paul. <clears throat> but I know that there are all these other things that are related to this, that scripture teaches. So I'm going to go and read and study those things. And that's what you should do when you read scripture. You don't know what Paul's talking about? Let Scripture teach you what Paul is talking about. And if the thing you read in Scripture wasn't what Paul was talking about, you still read Scripture, you still got taught by Scripture, right? And so to close us out, we're going to sort of do a, a broad overview now of Ephesians 1, just sort of where we have been. Ephesians 1, 3 we see that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The infallible assurance of faith is found on the blood and the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel and the testimony of the Holy Spirit to our souls concerning the promises made to us in God's word. Right? Every blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 4, we see, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
What I wanted you to get there was that God's choice is active, conscious, deliberate, free, and uncompelled. Before the foundation of the world proves to us that God's sovereign decree of election is free and uncompelled. It's not based on what we have done. We cannot earn the grace of God because then it wouldn't be grace. It would be what is due to us. And what is due to us is justice and wrath. But in Christ, we are made clean. Christ has redeemed us, his bride, his people. And in him we are made holy, that is, we are set apart as his bride, and we are made blameless, that is, that Christ has satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. And all of this is done in love. There at the end of verse 4 of Ephesians 1, in love. This love is unique to the elect. It is unconditional with respect to the elect, and it is effectual for our salvation. Remember in verse 5, we talked about this idea of adoption, right? Remember the Pharisees claimed to be God's children, right? What proof did they give? We keep the law. Abraham is our dad. So we are God's children. No. God's children are those who are given to Christ as a bride, right? We claim to be God's children because we have a Legal claim to sonship because we are the bride of Christ. We are washed clean on account of Christ. Those who are not married to Christ have no legal claim to being children of God. Rather, they are children of their father, the devil, as Jesus would tell the Pharisees, because they do the works of the devil. Right? We claim to be sons of God in a way that is independent of who our family is. It is independent of how good we were. We've been given ears to hear the promise of Christ, and we've been given faith to believe in the work of Christ. And we have been given to him as a bride, and by that we claim to be children of God on account of Christ. And Paul says that all of this is done according to the purpose of his will. Right, this is where I introduce this sort of phrase, it's okay to not be okay. We can find security in the decrees of God. We can find security in the sufficiency of Scripture. We can find peace in Christ when it doesn't make sense to us to have peace in Christ. We have redemption through his blood. If it sounds like I'm repeating myself, it's because Paul repeats himself. The law demands justice. When we talked about this, we talked about the sacrifices of the temple, how each year, each day, each Sabbath, the priests in the temple would have to kill animals. Right? And through these sacrifices, the saints of the Old Testament saw as Shadows the promises of God. But in Christ and through his word, we see now, not through shadows, but we see the full radiance of his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see the work of Christ. We see the blood of Christ poured out. And that was the work that those sacrifices pointed to. 
The law demands justice, and Christ satisfies the demands of the law once and for all for his people. It was here that we talked about, sort of strayed into this idea of legalism and causing children to fear. Right, I've emphasized enough now that it's not about what you have done. It cannot be about what you have done. And yet there are those who would come into the church and demand certain types of works. There are those who would come into the church and would try to instill fear in you because you have not met some standard be it some standard of works or some standard of belief, some standard of doctrine, do not fear and trust in the sufficiency of Scripture. Then in verse 8, we talked about the grace of God lavished upon us, right? This grace that is bountiful, overwhelming, and overflowing. This grace for faith. We talked about the grace of God given in all wisdom and insight. Again, this idea that God's grace is not compelled. This idea that God's decree is given through some foreknowledge that he has to check and make sure he saves the right people. This idea deprives God of his